0: Good morning. It's been a while with Christmas and vacation for me, and, and it's been a while since I've been up here. So it's good to see you. It's good to be with you. Uh, Michelle and I and our family went to Hawaii So we got to go, uh, it was my parents' 50th wedding anniversary, and so we were in Hawaii for a couple of weeks, and we had a great time with family. But it's good to be back with you this morning. And over the past number of weeks, as we've shared already a bit this morning, we have been discussing hard questions. And last week, Pastor Dave talked to us about suffering and uh, this idea of suffering, what do we do with it? How do we, how do we shape our Christian worldview in light of suffering? And what, what do we do with that? Where is God in our suffering? And I think it's important that we look at these hard questions. Because when we look at them and we discover the answers to them and, and, and how they can be answered, it can strengthen our faith. And knowing the possible answers to some of these hard questions can actually help us as we look at the world to see God in the midst of all of it. Because life can throw some pretty chaotic and crazy things at us. And so it's helpful to know that we have God in all that and see him in the midst of that. A few weeks ago, when we were in Hawaii, uh, I'm just going to keep saying that, you know, (laughs) just going to keep throwing it out there, um, where it's 28 degrees every day where we were in Hawaii, my son and I decided that we were going to go to the beach. We wanted to check out the waves. We had seen on the news that there was a high surf advisory in place. And so for us, Landlock Alberta boys, high surf warning means fun, right? Like we got to get out there into these big waves. My wife looked at me and she's like, you know, don't, kill my kid, <laughs> and, uh, and so anyway, I said, you know what, Michelle, he's going to be fine, like the high surf warning, that's for people who don't know how to swim, like we're fine, let's get out there, and so they decided, my family, my wife, and, and the kids and stuff, other than me and Bennett, they decided, hey, we're going to stick at the pool today, the waves are just a little bit too cra- crazy for the little ones, and me and Bennett headed off to the beach, where we had an amazing time, might I add, for several hours. We were, <laughs> we were having fun in the waves playing and the waves that day at the beach were topping 20 feet. Okay, massive, massive waves. We are having so much fun. And when these waves collect, because it's not every wave is a 20-footer, but when these waves collect, it's sort of like one giant wave and everything else kind of just settles and waits for this big wave to just go crash. And the noise is, is, is deafening of the sound of these waves when they come crashing in. Bennett and I, you know, we were, we were careful. We stayed a little bit closer to shore and we, we had fun. A few of the waves tossed us around, but for the most part, we had a great time for several hours. When when out of the sound of the waves and the noise of the birds and all the stuff that you hear on a beach is cut through by the sound of a quad ripping down the beach. And that is not allowed on this beach. And so this noise which is not normal everybody in the water turns to look and see where it's coming from and this quad comes racing down and we realize it's a lifeguard he's on a quad and he's racing down the beach and i'm thinking in the back of my mind really quickly as we turn around like oh yeah that's right there's a lot of rip currents out here today and so somebody probably got dragged out into the ocean and this lifeguard's coming to rescue somebody And as I look from the lifeguard and I go to shift my eyes back out to the ocean, I see 50 feet away from us, from me to about the doors of the sanctuary, I look over and I see a bunch of people kneeled over a guy who's just at the edge of the water and they're doing CPR like crazy on this guy as he lays lifeless on the beach. A few minutes earlier, you know, he would have been swimming beside us and we had no idea. But here he was in the fight for his life as people were working on him. And in that moment, it was all of a sudden, all the fun was gone. Everybody had seen this, this lifeguard come racing out, and, um, and, and now had like what, what we hadn't noticed before was now plain as day right in front of us, that what was fun a minute ago was now a fight for somebody's life, and that kind of sucked the joy out of the moment. And so we, we all exited the water, the hundred or so people that were in the water just slowly left, and we gathered on the beach, and we watched helplessly as these people tried to get this guy to come back to life. And as we were leaving the water, Bennett and I weren't super close to each other. And I look over at him and he looks at me and it was kind of like this, yeah, like we got to go. So anyway, um, a couple of things went through my mind when that happened as we were leaving the water. The first thing that went through my mind was, oh man, I don't want my son to see this. You know, as parents, we tried to keep our kids safe from the harsh realities of life. We know it all exists, and we know that the world can be a rough place, but we try to protect our kids from this stuff. There's nothing I could do to protect him now. He had seen it. The body was right there. The person was right there. And even if we left, it wouldn't have mattered because it was too late. And so we all gathered on the shore, and we were just watching as this unfolded. The other thing that went through my mind was how we can't add a single breath to our lives or to somebody else's, no matter how desperately we might wanna do it. You know, we, we have these techniques and they were doing CPR and all that stuff and desperately trying to get him. The family was there and they were calling out his name and it was very traumatic to witness. And yet there is nothing that we can do to add one more breath to that guy's life. We just had, could stand there and pray. And that's all Bennett and I did. We just stood there and watched and we prayed. There was other believers on the beach that day. Some of them were on their hands and knees praying for this guy to come back to life. And uh, there was other people who were just standing there and you could see their lips moving as they were silently making prayers to the Lord. What was a, a fun time, a few minutes, and even just a few waves earlier was now the end of somebody's life potentially. And so we were aware in that moment of just how little control that we have. They continue to work on this guy doing CPR until the ambulance came 15 or 20 minutes later and and took him away as they continue to work on him. He'd never snapped back to life uh, while we saw that. A few days later, we went back to the beach and I asked the lifeguard, I said, you know, what happened to that guy? And he said, well, you know, last we heard he was in a coma. So Whatever that means, somehow they brought him back to the point where they, he would be considered alive and in a coma, but we have no idea what happened to him. I, I looked at the news and tried to see if there was any reports that maybe he had lived or died or what had happened, but we don't know. I hope the guy's at home right now having you know, breakfast with his family or maybe even better at church, right? But, but the truth is, we don't know. We don't know what happened to him. Today, we are going to be talking about the hiddenness of God. And I think this is an important topic for us to talk about because the majority of the world, or many people in the world, don't believe that God exists. And for those of us who are believers, there are times that happen in life, like our time on the beach there, where we can call out to God and we need a miracle to happen and we want him to answer our prayers and we're like, Lord, where are you? And he doesn't show up. Like, where is he? Just like on the beach for us, I so wanted that guy to spark back to life. For his sake, of course, but also for my son. I didn't want my son to see this happening in front of him. I wanted wanted him to see the joy of him coming back to life and, oh, we're having a good day again. But truthfully, I also wanted him to, to do a miracle for me. I wanted to see that God was in control and reigned over death and that we could call out to him in a moment of need and he would show up and he would be there. But he didn't in that moment. You know the devil would like nothing more in those moments to replace the gaps in our theology, the gaps in the what we think about God with deception, little lies about God. Because if he can get those in there in the moments of weakness, then he can weaken our foundation in God, and he can kind of trick us into thinking that God isn't believe, uh, isn't real, and we don't need to believe in him. And then maybe he can destroy our faith and tear us away from him altogether. Now, there's a lot of things that we can talk about when it comes to the hiddenness of God, but there's only two things that we're gonna talk about today because we only have time for that. First, we wanna talk about why doesn't God reveal himself to the world? Why do we see, like, why is he hidden to so many people? And the second thing we want to talk about a little bit later on is is why does God sometimes seem hidden to us as believers? We know God. We have the Holy Spirit within us. And yet why at times, like my time on the beach there this, this past vacation, why does God seem hidden in those moments? Well, first, why doesn't God reveal himself to the world? Now you hear skeptics and and atheists and people say, you know what, if God just showed up right now in front of me in all of his splendor, if he just showed up right here in front of me and did a miracle, then I would believe in God. And it's like, okay, well, that's maybe a reasonable question. But the truth is that's never going to happen. Because if God showed up here in front of us right now in all of his glory and all of his splendor, it would kill us. God is so holy that sin can't be in his presence. And his holiness, from his holiness would come his wrath and his justice, which would reach out and it would destroy the sin in his presence. So he can't just show up in front of all of us right now because it would kill us. And the second thing is God already did that through Jesus. He sent Jesus, who is Emmanuel, God with us, to live among us, and he performed many miracles in front of people, in front of many people over the years. And you know what? There were some people who believed in him, and there were some people who didn't. The sinful heart still wants to have the ability to reject God, even when he's standing in front of them, performing miracles. And that is humanity's privilege right now. So God showing up and performing miracles isn't that one thing that's going to get people to believe. So as Christians, you know, we believe that God has revealed himself to the world, and we see his handiwork at work in nature, in the intricacies of life when a child is born. you know, We can look up at the stars. When we were in Hawaii, we went to the top of this mountain, and it was, it's really dark. You're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. There was no big cities around, and we were at the top of this mountain, and the moon wasn't up yet, and we could see thousands upon thousands of stars and galaxies absolutely unbelievable. For a believer, God is not hidden because the Holy Spirit reveals to us and shows us God in nature. He allows us to see those things and believe it. But a skeptic would say, well, just because you believe it, Joel, doesn't make it true, doesn't make it real. So what do we do? What evidence can we provide to these people that, that God exists in the world? What proof do we give somebody who won't believe our testimony and who doesn't believe the Bible? And is there evidence out there that we can have as believers that can help strengthen our faith as well? Well, thankfully... There are much smarter people in the world than me, and they're called scientists and all sorts of wonderful things, but these people, you know, they get together and they look at the science and they research and they make up these these arguments and they provide us with evidence and proof that we can look at and see God in the world. Tim Keller, who is uh, an American pastor and author and and an apologist, he wrote a book here called The Reasons of God or The Reasons for God. This is a great book, and I'm going to take four of the clues that Timothy Keller offers for the reasons of God's existence. Four clues out of this book. There's lots of other things in this book, so if you'd love to pick up a copy of it, I'm sure you can get it on Amazon or something. But I'm just going to talk about four of them, and I'm going to pull them right out of his book here today. I also want to encourage you, if you have hard questions and questions about your faith, that's what this series is all about. We have loaded up the discipleship hub on our website under the resource tab with information and things. There's only so much we can cover on a Sunday morning. Don't allow the gaps in your theology to be filled in in a moment of weakness. Go now, take control of your discipleship journey and learn more about God. Lots of stuff on there about the hiddenness of God and suffering in the world. These are good things to seek God on. Go check it out. Anyway, Keller's approach to this topic is to state that there is no perfect, undisputable proof out there that God exists. And when I read that, I was like, oh, come on, Keller. I was looking for one thing. Just give me one thing that will prove that God exists. I want to hang on to something, you know. But the fact of the matter is, that all, you know anybody can make up a theory or an argument about any piece of evidence. And I think, that, you know, as we went through the pandemic, we saw how irrational some of those things can be. But we, we saw people making arguments about pretty much anything to disprove something. But I think if we look at the evidence and we look at where the clues are pointing, we'll see that they all point to God. And that when we look at the clues, it becomes more rational to believe in God than to deny his existence. So to see all of this evidence that we can read about and learn about and all the proof of God in the world, especially what we're going to look at today, to look at all of that and still deny God's existence would be like standing in a hurricane with wind just blowing in your hair and the stuff is blowing around and then trying to rationally argue with somebody that wind is a construct of the mind. You know, it's irrational and it seems ridiculous. So let's look at these clues. Here's our first clue. The first clue that Keller gives us <clears throat> of God's existence begins with the origins of the universe. You know, How do we get the planets and the stars and the galaxies and, and the intricacies of the detail and all of that? How does that come into being? Now, as a believer, you, you, know, you would believe that God and say that God created it all. Whether you believe that the earth is billions of years old and it was formed slowly over time, or it's like 10,000 years old and it's just that young and God just made it all happen about 10,000 years ago, 20,000 years ago. Either way, doesn't matter what camp you're in, you believe the same thing, that God started it all and he created it all, right? We're on the same page with that. But that's not the case for everyone else. Many people and more and more people believe in the Big Bang Theory, which says that you know, the universe started at a single point in time and it has been expanding out from that point in time. And science is telling us that the universe is expanding and is expanding out from a single point. More and more Christian scientists are saying, you know what? The science actually supports that the universe is expanding out of a single point and it's moving out from there. All that we see and have today is a part of a chain reaction of events, uh, they would argue, that's occurred over billions and billions of years. Galaxies and planets are gathered and formed because debris that was flung out from that initial reaction. And we have today because of that, because of that Big Bang. And again, all of this is a chain reaction from something else that started with that one reaction at the Big Bang. And this is where we get our first clue of God's existence. Everything in the world and everything in the universe exists because of something else. And here's what I mean by that. You're here today because your mom and dad brought you into existence. And they were here because their parents brought them into existence. And so on and so forth until we get back to the first humans that were ever around. And then you either at that point believe that God created the humans or you believe that we emerged out of some slimy, miry pit from a one-celled amoeba. And then even at that point, you still have to argue, well, the pit came from somewhere and the amoeba came from somewhere, and so you chase the chain even further back from there. But either way, everything that exists is contingent on something else to have brought it into being. Now, at the moment, everything in the universe came from something else, right down to that very first moment when it all went bang. Everything has been a chain reaction, except for one thing. And that was the thing that started it all. What was the first thing in the chain that started it all? Well, I have this book here. I'm going to use Timothy Keller's book. Let's use this book as an example. Let's pretend that this book is where everything in the universe came from. Everything that the universe ever came into being. So the earth and all the planets and stars and the galaxy are going to come from this book. If I smack this book and it explodes and it's going to start everything. Where did the book come from? Because you have to answer that question, where the book came from. Because, you you know, at that point, the argument either becomes, well, the book came from nothing and nowhere, because everything comes from somewhere in the universe. Either you have to argue that the book came from nowhere, or you have to argue that maybe God created it. It's fascinating when you take all this back to its logical conclusions, what you're left with, right? You have, to argue, you have to look at it and you have to go, well, either you have to have enough faith to believe that everything in the universe came from nothing or that God created it. But either way, you can't, ex- you can't escape that it requires faith to believe either of those things. Because even a rational person would say, nothing comes from nothing, right? This is where the Big Bang argument gets us. Second, the second clue we see is in how precise the laws of nature must be in order for the universe to have come into being. All that we have today in life must be very precise. Scientists John Wharton and Hill Roberts, some close friends of mine, just kidding, they're not friends of mine, I read it in a book, Uh, they say that the balance between gravity and the expansion rate of the universe... If it were altered by one part in one million, billion, 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 there would be no galaxies, stars, planets, or life. And put another way, pardon me, put another way, the explosion that started the Big Bang, if you were to add more energy or more mass to that, it's, it, right now it was perfectly calculated, they say. If you were to add more mass or more energy, even one grain of rice to that explosion before it happened, the explosion wouldn't have had enough power to make it happen. And if you were to take one gram of rice away from all of that mass and matter, it would have exploded too fast to have made life happen. It would have blown everything away too far to make it happen. It's literally that precise. And that's just two variables that need to come together to make the whole thing work. There are also other variables. Strong and weak nuclear forces, constants of physics, the forces of electromagnetism to gravitational forces and more. All of this stuff has to be so finely tuned and precisely put together in order and work together in order for us to have what we have here today in life. One writer put it this way Imagine covering one billion continents the size of North America, one billion continents the size of North America with coins. Okay? It's a lot of coins. Now stack those coins to the moon. Then take one of those coins and paint it red. Put that coin, that red coin, in the middle of all of those coins on those 1 billion continents with coins stacked to the moon, then blindfold your friend and have him pick the right coin. That is roughly the odds that it would take to randomly balance the forces of electromagnetism with the forces of gravity to the fine-tuning point where we have what we have today and life exists and the earth and everything else as we know it. Those are ridiculous odds. Now, there's people out there who argue against that and have rebuttals, and they say things like, well, yeah, but if you have an infinite amount of universes, then logic and reason stand that one of those universes would have these ridiculous odds that would be able to come together and make this happen, because there's an infinite amount of them. So, obviously, one of them could have that. The problem is, science says, uh, wrong. There's no science out there that proves that. We are just making up theories at this point and working incredibly hard to try and deny what might be staring us right in the face, and that that is God created it all. The third clue that we are offered is this clue of beauty. You know, if we claim that there's no God, and we claim that there's no heaven and hell, and those are just fiction, that means that there's really no meaning in life, right? Right? Everything in life amounts to nothing, it came from nothing, and it's all over when we die. Now, the moral implications of that are, are crazy, and we're not going to talk about them today. But if that were true, I can't even imagine how terrible this world would be. But let's simply consider right now, this morning, that if there is no God, that would mean that love and beauty are absolutely meaningless. But it doesn't feel that way, does it? You know, when, when we're in the presence of beauty, we are captivated by it on a different level. just got a picture here for you guys. Uh, did I mention that we went to Hawaii? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I might have said that. Uh, anyway, uh, can we just pull up the picture from, there we go. Okay, so here's a picture that I took when we were in Hawaii, and we were looking down over the ocean. There's like a 2,000-foot cliff just beyond what you see there. This volcano created this as it was erupting, and, and I know the pictures never do it justice, but when we are driving along the road and we saw this, we had to stop and look at it. It was breathtaking, it was more than your eyes could barely take in. It was unbelievable to stand there and see the beauty that we were looking at. And it just goes on forever like that. And you, you stare at this stuff and you can't help but wonder and think, what created all of this? Or what's the purpose of it all? It is magnificent to look at. Staring at this type of scenery engages our mind on a different level. You know? And if it was meaningless... What would be the point of that emotion and that feel, that feeling that we have inside of us when we come across beauty like that? But it isn't just nature that we feel this way about. Works of art, songs, music, symphonies, the sight of our beloved. Our kids when they're born and even beyond that, when we look at them, they do the same thing for us. When we look at our kids' faces and we experience the love that we have with them and that they share with us, you know, when I see that with my kids, I'm, I'm brought to a place where I start contemplating the meaning of their life. If it was just staring at a wall in my office, not that I have a problem with my office wall, but I don't feel the same way about the wall in my office that I do when I look at my kids or I see this kind of scenery. And my mind can't fathom that the love that I have for them and the beauty that I experience is all for nothing. Nothing. It seems crazy to me that that all means nothing. That all the human love, if you were to gather it up and and bring it all together, anything that we've ever shared loving in this universe throughout all time, if you put it together and you said, well, it came from nothing, it would just be there was nothingness, then there was love on a rock, and then one day it was all gone and love never existed again. Are you kidding me? Do we really believe that? My heart tells me that, that love counts for more than that it leads me to believe that there there must be more and there must be a purpose to it all. As Keller puts it, in the presence of love, great art and beauty, we inescapably feel that there is real meaning in life. Why? Why does beauty and love affect us differently and on a deeper level in a more meaningful way than just sitting there and staring at the wall in my office? You guys gotta see it though, it's a nice wall. But I don't feel the same way about it Why? Well I believe it's because those things point us to God We appreciate beauty Because our hearts long to be in the presence of true beauty And that only exists in the majesty of God And we love And the reason we have love and never want it to end Is because God's love endures forever And it's so weird for us when love ends And somebody dies or, or there's separation in it There's this thought in our minds That it shouldn't be that way It's because we're supposed to be chasing after God's love. We're looking for it. But evolutionary biologists would argue that that we're captivated by beauty because it helps us find a better mate. And the reason we love scenery like that and it takes our breath away is because it helps us pick a better place to live. And the reason that we believe in God is because it helped us cope with something at some point the harsh realities of life and it just helped us stay alive and gave us some advantage. The reason, you know, that our kids are cute and that we appreciate the way they look and we look at them with such amazing, you know, love and affection is so that we don't kill them, right? Now, some kids aren't, you know, like my my kid sometimes isn't cute enough. I still Anyway, <laughs> kids you don't get that joke, but as a parent you you understand. Sometimes they're just not cute enough. <laughs> so the pre The the predisposition to appreciate beauty and our mountaintop experiences that cause us to think that there's more more to life than all of this can be boiled down to simply traits that were handed down to us through our DNA to survive. It doesn't mean anything beyond survival. But what their argument fails to account for is why we have this unfillable desire for more love and more beauty. It's not like once you see it, you're done with it. If you lived in Canmore or like Hawaii, you know you wouldn't, just, you wouldn't just be like, oh, it's beautiful and I'm done. I don't need to look for beauty anymore. You still want to travel. You still want to see beauty. We can't get enough of it. And when we experience love once, it's not like we're done with it. We want to feel loved all the time and we search for it, don't we? It's not like when I look in my kids' faces and I see them once, I'm like, yeah, good. I'm not going to kill you. Moving on, I'll never look at you again. It's not like that at all. I want to see their faces again. I even want to see your kids' cute faces every now and again. I don't want your kids, but I'd love to look at their cute little faces. We appreciate beauty. Our longing for love and beauty that keeps us searching for more is an indication to us that more must exist out there. It's not proof, but it's an indication that it might be there. And it keeps us searching because we are hardwired to search for it until we find it. Because our longing is actually only truly fulfilled in one place. And that's with God. God wants us to keep searching for love and for beauty until we find it in his presence. Because that's the only place we're actually truly going to see it and it's going to be fulfilled for us. The last clue that we're going to talk about today that helps us see that God hasn't hidden himself from the world is this idea of morality. The idea that there are certain moral standards that exist out there in all of us. You know, they don't change that dramatically from one person to another. For instance, murder. Generally speaking, we think murder is wrong. Now, we know that inside of our society and our world that murder has happened. And in that group of people who have murdered others, some would say, I knew it was wrong, I know it was wrong. There might be a few people, though, that still say there's nothing wrong with it. But generally speaking, as we look out over the population, we would say murder is immoral and it's wrong. Evolutionary psychologists believe morals are relative and are created out of a group deeming that things are moral and immoral. Moral practices are promote, uh, somehow promoted survival and that's why we hold them as right. You know, but in the end, on a universal scale, there's actually nothing out there that truly says something is true and something is good or something is right and something is wrong. It is just what we desire and design, Part of me, as a group. So let me ask this question. Does that mean that the first murder that took place on the earth was emotionless and it affected no one? I mean if, if this had to be the case right if if morals are a construct of society and what we decide as a group and we pass it down through the evolutionary process then that must mean that the first murders were kind of emotionless because it wasn't immoral to do it. Cain and Abel and I are hanging out in the field and we're you know we're doing some work probably not on a tractor yet but you know we're doing some work and all of a sudden Cain kills Abel and I look over and I'm like so what did you have for, for lunch? Like, are you having peanut butter and jam? Like, that's how it would be, right? Because it wasn't wrong. It wasn't immoral back then. So why do we have this feeling and this emotion inside of us that says, you know what, to kill somebody is wrong. Where did that intense emotion come from? Now, in evolutionary biology, well, because, you know, when it happened, we decided it was wrong. It was the wrong thing to do. And those feelings evolved out of there. But if it wasn't wrong when it first happened, why would I feel like it was wrong? And if I felt like it was wrong after it happened the first time, where did that feeling come from? Did somebody else put that emotion and that immoral compass in there first? You trace it back and these were, this is where it gets you. This theory also believes that altruistic behavior, that is people who care for the needs of other people above their own and, and the heroes that we see in society, it argues that those things and those traits exist because Living like that meant that we would survive and live better. It gave us a better chance of survival. And so the altruistic behavior, though, actually gives us another clue for God in the world. You know, who doesn't love a hero? Who doesn't love, you know, somebody who is self-serving? The best civil servants that we have are the ones that put the needs of the people above their own. The best marriages that we have and we can look at are marriages where one partner is concerned about the other partner's needs over their own. Those are the best marriages. If God was not at the center of our moral compass, evolution should have created in us a sense that this altruistic behavior, being selfless, is actually wrong outside of your clan. Because what happens is if I start saving people outside of my clan, it means that there's less food for my clan. And maybe I've saved more people in that clan, and so now there's more people to come and take over my clan. Survival of the fittest, Right? And I've now reduced the odds that my clan is going to survive. So, so evolutionary uh, speaking, we would say um, altruistic behavior types outside of our clan should have created in us something that is wrong. Saving a child in traffic that's about to get hit by a car if they're outside of the province or outside of the country should create in me these feelings that were close to like murder because I'm, I'm, I'm going against the evolutionary process. I've allowed the weaker, less deserving outsiders to survive. So why is it that we all have this appreciation then for selflessness? Why is it that a nation, as a nation, we send aid to other nations? Why is it that a novel or or a Hollywood blockbuster movie can create these powerful emotions within us You know, when the hero risks their lives to save people they don't know? Or even more so when that hero actually gives up their life to save strangers even if you're not a christian giving up your life to save a stranger is still considered to be one of the the highest most ultimate acts that you can do for another person in the avengers endgame movie i'm going to spoil this end of this movie right now so if you haven't close your ears if you haven't heard it here we go in that movie at the end of it robert downey jr gives up his life to save the world and there were literally people weeping in the theater around me. Not me, because I'm a real man, right? <laughs> Just other people were. But, uh, but, but if, the, if, if, if um, evolution was correct in terms of how we come up with morals, then that process shouldn't have created people or shouldn't have made people weep because Robert Downey Jr. Jr. had done something amazing for society and what he had given up and all the, oh, the sacrifice. They should have been like, it doesn't matter. It's meaningless. He did that for, for no one. But that's not the way the case, the case that it was. You want to know why that we all have this level of basic morality and why selflessness is a trait that we find attractive? It's not because that evolutionary trait and behavior that came from nothingness and and then was just emerged, part of me, as a dominating trait. That's not what it is. It's because we're hardwired by God to appreciate those traits. It's no surprise that morality and selflessness and the laying down of one's life for another is so attractive to us because it is our Savior who holds all of those qualities and traits in perfection. And God wants us to be drawn to Jesus. We are created to recognize and appreciate that in him. We're supposed to be drawn to him. It's not an evolutionary process. God put it there. Now, I know people can make arguments and rebuttals against all of this stuff and and, and against any of these clues. I get that. But living their theory that life came from nothing and that it means nothing and eventually all of this amounts to nothing would mean that we have this horrible existence as humanity. You know, how empty it would be to be a human and, and live with that kind of mindset. And you know what? You think the world is bad right now, but man, imagine what it would be like if that was actually the case, if it really did mean nothing. Nothing. But that's not the truth, right? God is real. He has revealed himself in all creation and even into the very fibers of our being. Psalm 139, 13 says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. We are created to be drawn to God through the things that he has revealed about himself in the world that we can know and see. So that we can know him and so that the world will be without excuse. Unfortunately, we still live in a time where there is a deceiver running around. And so Satan is blinding our eyes to the truth of God that we see in all of this stuff. It's how you can get people to believe that everything that was created came from nothing. And how you can get people to believe that that love and beauty and the way that it affects us deep in our consciousness, that somehow that means nothing and it came from nothing. That is the work of Satan pulling our eyes away from what God has done in the world. Finally, I don't want to wrap up this morning without briefly talking about why we believers sometimes feel that God is hidden from us. Because I think this one affects us all. It certainly affected me when I was standing on that beach with Bennett that day as we were calling out to God. The answer to this question starts with our understanding that, you know what, we live in a broken world. We shouldn't expect things to go perfect here. This isn't heaven. And we're gonna face trials of all kinds because we live here. But we need to figure out how to respond when these trials come along so that the devil isn't able to get in there and shake our faith and convince us that God is somehow absent or that God is unloving when we're weak. When something goes wrong in our lives, the way we, the way we often respond is, is by saying things like, you know, God, where were you when all that happened? Or why aren't you stepping in right now? cases of genocide. We talk about the war in Ukraine and we hear these stories coming out of there and we're like, God, where are you in all of this? But our suffering isn't because of God. It isn't his doing. It's actually Satan's doing. It is Satan's, uh, Satan's, the reason that we have death in this world right now. It's the reason why we feel separated from God and we are separated from him. It's the reason why I can stand on a beach and call out to God and he's not anywhere to be seen as far as I can tell because he's not answering my prayer. The separation that, that causes us to wonder that is actually Satan's doing. Our response is usually to blame God when this stuff happens, you know? But it's actually more appropriate to blame Satan because it is his, the fruit of his work that has caused us to live in this reality that we have right now. Our frustrations towards God then aren't because God is doing it. Our frustrations are because God isn't doing anything about it right now, or so it would seem. You know, the side of us that was built for the Garden of Eden, the side of us that wants perfection and it wants beauty and it wants, wants all of that right now, that side of us knows that this world should be better than that. And deep down inside, we know that, that life shouldn't end and, and, and love shouldn't end. And so we cry out to God, like, where are you in all of this? Wanting him to fix it. Our hearts long for that day, as Revelation 21.4 says, when God will wipe every tear from our eye, we want that reality right now. But for the moment, we are living in a broken world. And we are all called to be patient with God as he has been patient with us as he carries out his plan of redemption in this world. You see, we think God can't be loving because of the sin and the bad things that we see that are happening in the world. But it is because God is loving that we have the ability to know him and to love him as he gathers the people to himself. It is precisely because he's loving that we, that we have sin still in this world because he's given us a chance. If God wasn't loving, then none of us would have that chance to go to heaven and be with him. And we wouldn't have the chance to have his Holy Spirit in our heart. And none of us would have a hope for our future. Listen to what Second Peter says, 3, 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So for now, we have to live in this broken world until our bodies give up and we die, or the last believer is saved and Jesus returns and he takes us all home. That means that death and suffering, they're going to be a part of our our experience and, we're ev- and they're inevitably going to lead us to questions about, you know, to ask ourselves, like, where is God in all of this? And is he even real? But God hasn't gone anywhere. Deuteronomy 31.6 says, you know, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Just because you can't see God and you don't understand what's happening in your life right now, it doesn't mean that he isn't there. And just because you can stand on a beach in the middle of Hawaii and cry out to God to have him save the life of somebody or answer your prayers and he doesn't answer them doesn't mean that he isn't at work. I could have easily questioned if God was real in that moment, but I didn't. You know what I did? As we were looking at what was happening there, I remembered that we live in a sinful and a fallen world and this is the painful reality of living in this time. But one day... God will bring this all to a close and we will finally be with him. We will live with him in the fullness of our savior and we'll be able to look at all of these trying days behind us. And we won't question for one second, where was God in all of that? Because we will know without a shadow of a doubt in that moment, we'll get it. He was walking with us right beside us the whole time, preparing us to live with him in eternity. I'd like to invite the band to come up now. I'm gonna read this one last piece of scripture to you guys in 1 Peter 1, verses six through nine. And it talks about the trials that we face here and what's going on. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by the fire may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your soul. We are going to enter into a time of reflection and communion right now. God is not hidden He has revealed himself to us. And we see that throughout history. You know, this table of communion that we're going to approach right now is an example of that, of of God with us, of him revealing himself to us. It's another example of that. When Jesus came to earth, he did that in a physical way and his sacrifice was for us and to pay for our sins so that we could have that opportunity to be with him one day. You know, as I was spending some time reflecting this week about God's mercy and his love, I came to this realization that, that I am not worthy. And that was, it was kind of a powerful moment, actually, as I sat there and I felt like God was saying, you're not worthy. And I'm like, Lord, what do you want me to do with this? Like, this is kind of a, a big thing to say. And like, I know about Jesus and all that. That's not where he was going with that. So I tracked with it for a few minutes. And I was like, okay, I am not worthy. And I thought about that. But God can do that. He could stand in our midst right now and he could pronounce us not worthy because that's the result of the human condition. That's the result of sin entering the world. We are not worthy to be in God's presence. And when you let that sink in, it's like, oh man, there's nothing I could say to change that. But as I reflected on the fact that I'm not worthy to be in God's presence or be near God or even be in heaven with him one day, the glory of Jesus began to increase in my mind. And I thought, oh man, you know who is worthy? Jesus is worthy. And I believe that. And I believe that his sacrifice is sufficient to cover God's wrath towards me in my unworthiness. And I can hold on to that. And then Jesus didn't just leave me hanging and go here, trust me on this, even though he should. He sent his Holy Spirit into our hearts so that we can have confirmation that this is true and this is real. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us. So we sit here today unworthy, but as we do that and as you reflect right now, remember that Jesus is worthy and cling to him in your unworthiness and do that with grateful hearts.